The reading for today's sermon comes from Joshua chapter 23. Hear the word of the living God. A long time afterwards, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officials, and said to them, I'm old now and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall quickly perish from off the good land that he has given to you. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, we pray that you open our eyes that we may perceive in this your word that which we need to hear so that we may live lives of faithfulness in the world where you've placed us. We pray also that you'd give us eyes to see the idolatry that surrounds us, that we may learn to discern it, that we may drive it out from our own hearts and minds and lives, and so cleave to you as this text requires. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. Let me add my welcome to those of you who are visiting us today. It's a real pleasure for us to see some unfamiliar faces. We're glad you've joined us. We hope you have a wonderful and blessed time with us this morning.
The title of today's sermon, which you'll see in the orders of worship, if you've, I hope you've been given them as you walked in this morning, is tearing down the idol of our feelings. And I want to begin with a quotation which is in the process of becoming rather famous, and I think deservedly so, from an outstanding book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a somewhat extended quotation, but it's very important and quite illuminating, I think, and I've had it printed, thank you, Mrs. Loki, in the order of worship in the insert. Let me read it. Um, He's talking about the issue of job satisfaction. That's the, the subject. The subject is much deeper than that. But he offers this as an illustration of where the modern world has come to in some very important respects. Let me read it. My grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, the industrial heartland of England. I used to live near there, just so you know. And it is indeed England's industrial heartland. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction in his work, there is a distinct possibility that he would not even have understood the question given that it reflects, really, the concerns of psychological man's world, to which he did not belong, but we do. If he did understand, he would probably have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. If it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. His needs were those of his family, and in enabling him to meet them, his work gave him satisfaction. If I am asked the same question, contrasting view here, my instinct, this is Carl Truman now talking, Carl Truman is a few years older than me, 50-something I think, my instinct is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives me, he's a professor, about the sense of personal fulfillment that I feel when a student learns a new idea or or becomes excited about some concept as a result of my classes. The difference is stark, and it's this difference that I want us to interrogate today. The difference is stark. For my grandfather, job satisfaction was empirical, outwardly directed, and unrelated to his psychological state. For members of mine and subsequent generations, the issue of feeling is central. The issue of feeling is central, and it's about time it wasn't. The book from which this quotation is drawn is quite a complex one. Uh, It is really worth reading. It's not one you're going to knock down in an afternoon. And if you do try and take it on, take on the real thing, not the dumbed-down, slimmed-down version that they produced six months later because they thought, oh, modern Christians can't read this stuff. Take it on properly. It's one to be done like C.S. Lewis style, you know, uh, pencil gripped between your fingers and pipe clenched between your teeth if you're that kind of a person. Um, it took me many mugs of Earl Grey tea to get through this one. It's, it, it's what uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, not C.S. Lewis, it's what uh, Sherlock Holmes would have called a three-pipe problem. Remember those? <laughs> um, and it draws on Freud and Rousseau and the Romantics and Marx and Darwin and a bunch of different people. But it distills, this quotation distills down a whole cluster of related ideas which have come to dominate the entire way that we see the world. At the most simple and basic level, Carl Truman's grandfather looked outward. He looked out at the created world. He looked at his job. He looked at 
other people and their needs. He looked at his relationships. He looked at his calling. He looked at his responsibilities. That's where his attention was directed. And in contrast, we look inward at our feelings. So, two or three generations ago, Carl Truman's grandfather, if job satisfaction were a thing at all, it would have been all about whether he had been able to meet, through his outwardly directed work, the needs of those who depended on him. Can I provide for my family? Am I able to accomplish something externally in the world? He didn't think about his feelings at all. In contrast, nowadays, if I asked you about whether you're satisfied in your job, and if I asked myself that same question, my thoughts instinctively go to inner psychological categories. My sense of worth, the sense of accomplishment that I feel from what I get out of what I do, and the value and reward and the self-actualization that I feel or don't feel from looking inward, that I discern in myself when I think about what it means to do my job. And this... I want to assert, is the tip of a vast and destructive iceberg. In every area of life, we have made an idol out of our feelings. Our feelings have come to dominate how we look at everything, to the point where you're thinking now, some of you probably, like, well, what else is there? I mean, isn't, like, of course, how I feel about life is how I feel about life, isn't it? I want to say, yes, it is, because we're idolaters. And the idol is the idol of our feelings, and it's about time it was torn down. This idol is so seductive that I, I'm afraid I predict a couple of different reactions to today's sermon. I think uh, some people will be just completely puzzled, They're like not in, at all follow. What I want to talk about today is somewhat complex, and uh, uh, it's a three-pipe sermon, maybe. Uh, I encourage you to focus and to try and follow what it is I'm trying to say, and I'll do the best I can to explain it. Um, I think some may be offended, personally affronted. I'm not sorry. I am sorry that I haven't done this before. I felt confronted and rebuked as I sat at my desk with a mug of Earl Grey tea trying to figure this stuff out. And I'm grateful to God that he's not kept me blind any longer. The issue of uh, the idol is prompted by Joshua 23. And I want to just briefly explain where this has come from. Uh, we're not going to be spending so much time in the text today. Today's sermon is mostly application. But I wanted to show you where it comes from uh, in the text. You remember that we're in the last and final section of the book of Joshua. We've had the first three sections. They've entered the land. They've conquered the land. They've allocated the land. Everyone's got their inheritance. There they stand in this gloriously privileged position which resembles ours in some remarkable respects. Because here we are in Christ, heirs of the nations, with privileges the like of which that generations past could not dream about, never mind experience. And with this in mind, Joshua stands before the assembled western tribes of Israel. He sent the easterners home in the previous chapter, and he confronts them. He reminds them that God has done all this stuff for you, verses 1 to 5, here's all the things you've got. And then he says, look, verse 6, therefore be very strong. This is what you need to do if you want to keep the land, you need to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses. Don't turn from it to the left or the right. This is how you're going to remain in your inheritance. Church. This, I mean church has a new people, right? Congregation of all saints. We need to keep and 
hew closely to and love and follow and do the word of God. That's how we're going to remain in our inheritance. But do you notice Joshua goes on and he says something new? You're familiar with the keep the law of Moses thing from back in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7 and a few other places in the book where he's had this exhortation. But in chapter 23 verse 7 there is something new. It's not been mentioned before in the whole book. It's an emphasis that Joshua now needs to direct his hearer's attention to, which I now need to direct your attention to, which is remarkably reminiscent of our reading from Exodus 34 in God's providence. Verse 7, can you spot the new thing he says? That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods. Can you see? This is the thing that's going to take you away from the law of God. Their gods. And notice the emphasis. He repeats multiple verbs to highlight the danger and emphasize the problem. Make mention of the names of their gods or swear by the names of their gods or serve their gods or bow down to their gods. That's the thing we've got to not do. We must keep away. Instead, verse 8, we must cling or cleave, literally, to the Lord. The language is that of marriage. It's taken from Genesis 2, 24. Just as husband and wife are to cleave to each other in love, so we are to cleave to the Lord and stick with him and not follow these alternatives, these idols, which is why idolatry in Scripture is spiritual adultery. And then again at the end of the passage, verse 16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and how would you do that? And go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then you're finished. It's idolatry, which is now highlighted as the great danger for the people of Israel. And if you read on in the book of Judges, then that's, of course, that's what you see. The people are um, frequently, every generation or every other generation, being drawn into idolatry. And what's really intriguing, I puzzled about this on Tuesday, I was like, what do I do with this? Verse 11, just look with me. Just look at verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. I was thinking, what? why would we need to be careful? And then the thought just struck me. We know what their idols were. They don't. They do not yet know how precisely they're going to be tempted. By what idolatrous temptations are they going to be gripped? We look back and we think, yeah, Baal, Ashtoreth, just stay clear of them, you'll be fine. They didn't know. So they, looking forward, need to be very careful. And we, looking forward, therefore, need to be very careful because it seems to me that we've done quite a good job of identifying some idols, but we have completely overlooked too many of them. We have identified quite well the idols of consumerism and our physical image and career and wealth and some of the underlying ideological structures like Marxism and postmodernism. We've identified the greatest false god of our age, the state. I'm not always so sure we're so good at resisting all those idols, but I think we have probably done a reasonably good job of identifying them. But I think we've let one through the net. I genuinely think that the idol of our feelings has slipped in unnoticed and is now starting to shape the way that we live, the way we relate to each other. It certainly shapes the way that many Christians worship, and it will destroy us unless we tear it down. And so that's what I'm going to try and help us to start doing today. A brief reminder of um, uh, the theology of idolatry. We'll talk about this first. I want to just kind of sketch what idolatry is and how idols work. Just, and you'll, that'll be familiar to many of you, but a refresher will do as good. And then I'd simply want to apply the lessons, which it seem to me come straight out of this text, to this particular idol. I want to try and show you how we are in the process of being ruined by the idol of our feelings. Are you with me? 
So briefly, a quick theology lesson, what is idolatry? An idol is something that's not God, which is treated as though it were God. Uh, a false God is how we might think of it. Uh, and so because it's treated as God, even though it's not, it starts to have a kind of absolute status in dictating our lives. Think of Old Testament Israel and worshipping the Baals or the Ashtoreths or some other gods of Moab or wherever else. They devote themselves to that God. Um, in, in effect, what's happened is that, uh, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, we've exchanged the Creator for something that is created. That's the fundamental distinction at work in idolatry. We ought to worship the one who made us, the creator. Instead, we worship something that is created. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Created things. And idolatry, therefore, comes in different forms. Sometimes it might actually be a physical statue or an image, a Greek Orthodox icon, or rosary beads, or uh, a statue of Chemosh, the child-burning god of the Ammonites, if I recall. Sometimes it's an idea. See, not all idols are physical objects. It might be an idea like uh, Allah in Islam. Uh, Allah doesn't exist. Got news for you. If you think Allah is just a name for the triune god of the Bible, it's not. Allah is the figment of the imaginations of Muslims who are misled into believing in him. He's an idea who doesn't exist, but you can devote yourself to an idea that doesn't exist and let it shape your entire life. It might be a project like my career. Uh, my social media presence, my influence in an organization. You could idolize all those things. This is the category into which I think the idol of civil government falls. Uh, the idol of the state is a project, really, which seeks to make that idol honored and pay homage to it and so on and so forth. And idolatry, if that's what idols are, idolatry basically involves serving or worshiping those things. And serving and worship Worshipping has a kind of twofold valence in Scripture. There is a, a religious, or well, it's all religious, I guess, there's a cultic aspect, a formal liturgical aspect, formal acts of often gathered or sometimes individual worship, go to the temple of Baal and offer sacrifices to him. And then there is the kind of lifestyle object, the Romans 12, 1 and 2 worship. Yeah? This is your spiritual or logikos, logical worship, uh, to live lives that are conformed to the theology of the idol. And so somebody who's worshipping an idol will in some way pay homage to it in rituals and ceremonies of some kind and in many, many ways will let it dictate the course of all their lives and their decisions and so on. And so just take an example of something like consumerism. Okay? We, we, have the, we have the shrines of the mall and we have our um, rituals of window shopping and then we have the way that those things shape our lives, don't we? And it's amazingly true that uh, comfort shopping is still a thing. Uh, it hasn't become less so since Amazon, because now instead of looking through the window and buying, you can just look through the screen and click. And you see what's happening. The, 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 the idol is starting to dictate somebody's life, and it's starting to ruin it. It's what idolatry does to us. Idolatry is harmful in lots of ways. It's an affront to the true God. It's ungodly. It actually harms our relationship with the world. You don't honor something actually by making it your idol. This is what sometimes happens with young men and women when they meet the man or the woman of their dreams, or the woman or the man of their dreams, the other way around. Um, they, she's so wonderful. 
like, oh, she's so wonderful. And it's like, yeah, she is wonderful. You know, she's still a sinner. <laughs> we shall discover, you know, first day of your marriage if you end up. And it's just worth remembering that. You don't help somebody. You don't honor somebody by treating them as though they're God. You don't actually honor the civil authorities by treating them as though their word were absolute and so on. But there is a third feature of idolatry which is appreciated less, I think, than it needs to be. Even though the the thing that we're idolizing may be a good thing, we actually harm it and damage it when we worship it. And if that it is a part of us, just imagine what we could be doing to ourselves. The end result is we're left empty and dissatisfied because idols can't ever provide what they promise. The, the locus classicus for this, if you like, is in uh, Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13, where the Lord speaks through the prophet. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. What is it that is horrifying to the very fabric of created reality? The prophet declares, my people have committed two sins. Really? Only two? Yes. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Idols. Can you see the image that the prophet is using? God is the fountain of living waters. He's the one who can supply all you need, which in a desert land like Israel, having a fountain is awesome, because then you can just drink whatever you want. But they've abandoned me, and they've gone and pursued something else, which looks like it might be easier. A cistern, because I could just store the water there and have it whenever I need it. This is how the imagery works. But it can't actually hold water, which is why in Jeremiah 38, when, remember when he's thrown in the cistern by Zedekiah? It doesn't go splash, it goes splodge, because it's just mud at the bottom, right? And that's how the imagery of cisterns works in the book of uh, Jeremiah. If you're trying to be satisfied by pursuing an idol, you will fail and you'll be ruined by it. And all your relationships will be destroyed by it. It's like trying to quench your thirst by drinking seawater. You know, and I, I don't really understand the biology, but I think basically it's too salty for your kidneys to process. So when you drink some, your body sort of says, okay, this is okay, but I'm going to need more water to process all these impurities. So you drink like one glass of seawater. I mean, it'd be all slimy probably. But anyway, if you want you know, salty water, you need three glasses of pure water to process all those impurities. So you just keep getting more thirsty. This is the, the, the terrible, bitter irony of idolatry. You, you think that you, we, we effectively take it on its own terms. It's like we believe it's publicity. We believe what it says about itself. We believe that the idol of consumerism can satisfy us. And so we just buy, 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 buy. And then we discover we're feeling miserable. And so we think, well, what I really need is to buy some more because that will make me feel better. And you feel better, better for about four seconds until reality hits home. This is most obvious to me, it seems, in, uh, with the idol of the state. I know I've mentioned this a few times and we'll talk about it in more detail on another occasion. But... Um, if you think that the state is God, the solution to everything is more laws and more regulations. And so what happens then is you discover, oh, there's not enough affordable housing around here, so what do we need to do? I know, rent controls, because that will keep the costs low, and that will mean that people can afford to live here. And of course, what happens if you impose rent controls is all the landlords sell up and move somewhere else, so there's less affordable housing, not more. You see what you've done? And it, what fascinates me and horrifies me is that this mechanism 
is different in every domain of idolatry. How the state as an idol ruins us, and how consumerism as an idol ruins us, and how my spouse as an idol could ruin me, and how feelings as an idol can ruin me. They're all different mechanisms, but the underlying principle is unfailingly the same, and it will ruin you. So, that's the idolatry. That's that's idolatry in general. I want to think briefly about this specific idol of feelings and where it's come from. Now, this is where you really need to go and read um, Carl Truman's book um, because it's, it's really detailed and it draws on a whole bunch of other detailed um, pieces of work. But I'm just going to sketch as briefly as I can how this idolatry of feelings has entered our world. And then we'll start thinking about some examples and we'll see it in the world very plainly and then I want to show you that you'll find it right here as well. Truman identifies really three major strands of influence. First, the Swiss, and uh, later moved to France, philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, 18th century, who among many other things, he would identify his fundamental, uh, the fundamental core of his philosophy is the claim that humans are good by nature and are corrupted by society. External influences, society, corrupts human beings, and the natural state of man is purity and goodness. You remember, if you've read any Rousseau, he's got that kind of parallel with Augustine's Confessions, where Augustine steals the pears and realizes the guilt lies in him, and, and Rousseau steals, I forget what it is, and then he, starts, he says, well, there's nothing wrong with me. It's, it was my friends who persuaded me to do it. The problem is out there. And it's a very self-conscious attempt to contrast himself with Rousseau and therefore with with, um, Augustine and therefore with the Bible. Oops. Um, And so if you think that people are fundamentally good deep down and what's happened is that they've been ruined by society, what you really need to do is to get deep down into them. Uncover their deepest feelings and set them... Here's a crucial thing. If you want somebody to flourish for Rousseau, you discern their deepest desires and their deepest feelings and you try and set them free from any external norms or constraints, or social conventions. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. Don't let anything constrain your freedom. Let the bird of your inner feelings fly free. Rousseau. Next, uh, the Romantics. The Romantics were basically the way that Rousseau made it into the mainstream. People don't really read Rousseau, which is probably a good thing, but they read Wordsworth and Blake and Shelley. And in the 18th century... Those ideas started to permeate the mainstream. And you know, the, um, uh, the, the underlying motif of romantic art and poetry is that our feelings are a guide to truth as experienced by people. So really, you, again, you want to let your feelings flow free of social constraints and moral norms. The final ingredient came much later with uh, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, who... Really, I mean, he kind of invented, not invented, he discovered the idea of the unconscious and revolutionized counseling and psychotherapy as a means to get at the unconscious within you. The idea is there's, and this isn't entirely false, of course, we do have unconscious desires. None of these these people are completely wrong in all they're saying, but what happens when they're mixed together, you get this toxic mixture, whereby the end result is, Rousseau, I'm basically good, In particular, my feelings and desires and emotions are good, and they're a reliable guide to the reality of the world. And 
And human flourishing comes about, Freud, by uncovering through counseling and psychoanalysis your feelings and processing them and crucially following them. So it's not that there's a world out there and a word given to me and I must conform myself to those things. No. No, 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 no. Instead, the world must be made to conform to me. My feelings are absolute. My feelings are sovereign. Now, it's interesting, again, just um, when you uh, read, I think it's the first chapter of Truman's book, he highlights that it's not that people have read all these thinkers and are self-consciously processing this uh, intellectual history. Um, he picks up Charles Taylor's uh, idea of what he calls social imaginary, which is a, a set of intuitions that guide and shape how we think and how we live. And uh, I mean, almost none of us probably have read Rousseau, and certainly almost nobody in Fort Worth has read Rousseau, but you could, you could find millions of people out there who think that their feelings are a reliable guide to how they should flourish. And I want to show you how with these examples. Let's start thinking now about how this idolatry of feelings has started to shape the world we live in. And you'll very quickly, I hope, start to piece these things together. What happens if you start to let your feelings be a guide to, let's say, your view of who you are. Let's take something really basic. What kind of person are you? I'm looking at this man here, married, about six foot two, male, lives in Fort Worth, right? Uh, reasonably good at tennis, not as good as his brother, his brother says. Yeah, these are objective facts about this person. But if you think that your feelings are sovereign, then you could find yourself saying, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Recognize that? That's completely incomprehensible, apart from Rousseau, the Romantics, Freud. But now it's something that biology professors seem to think is plausible. And what's happened? My feelings are morally unquestionable, determinative of who I am, right? Sovereign, remember, idolatry. So in a feelings-dominated world, you can suddenly have, what is it, two, three, four percent of people who think they're born the wrong sex? Depends where you look. If you look in some universities, it's 20 or 30 percent. Now, surely, Pastor Jeffrey, you can't seriously be suggesting we're going to find this in the church. <clears throat> well, really, okay, so obviously, um, that kind of egregious form of this uh, feelings-dominated view of self-identity, we're not going to find that very frequently. What do we find? Have you noticed an increasing tendency in yourself to consider what your psychological type is. An increasing interest in, an increasing concern about psychological self-diagnosis. What kind of a person are you? Well, I'm a people person. No, I'm not really a people person. I'm a bit more introverted. Uh, I'm an intuitive thinker. Or here's a, the example, the way it really rocked into the church was the, the Love Languages book. Hands up if you ever read that Love Languages book. There we are. Nobody read Rousseau, but, and the three or four people, five people, 
28 people over there who are pretending, no, I don't know what that book's all about. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of different factors going on here. And part of it is the increasing availability and ease of access to psychological tools like the Myers-Briggs type indicator and the Enneagram and so on. And we've all got the internet, and so we can find these things online. But, but that doesn't, that's the supply side. What about the demand side? The demand side is that there's people want to explore what kind of person am I? Let me give you an example. Have you ever felt like this? Um, I find people a bit exhausting. Uh, I, I know that some of the families in the church, you know, they have people around, you know, Friday evening or maybe Sunday afternoon. It's like, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, just, I need a bit of space. I get emotionally exhausted very quickly. Uh, I'm not really a people person. Uh, it's hard for me to be around people for a long period of time. That's just really interesting. Like, how the heck do you know you're any different from anybody else? How would you know? I mean, you might be now, you might have become like that because we become soft in relation to psychological and emotional and physical strains and stresses that we seclude ourselves from. If you don't ever lift anything, you become weak. If you don't ever put yourself in a position where there's lots of people around, you stop being a person who can handle lots of people. It's just, that's just what happens to human beings. But it's just really interesting. Like, what, is that just you? Or is, is that what you've become? Because sometime way, way back, you started telling yourself that. So those feelings which have now started to shape how you live have started to become who you are because Psalm 115, we become what we worship. You know, I, I remember back in seminary, hands up if you've ever done a Myers-Briggs test. Yeah, I can't believe they made us do this at seminary. We all sort of, sort of knew this was a load of garbage back then, but we all sort of did it anyway because it was kind of interesting and we didn't really know why it was such a bad idea. I now discover that every psychologist who's ever reviewed this Myers-Briggs type indicator has said this is a load of rubbish. It doesn't correlate empirically with anything. The only people who are in favor of it is the rather large organization that sells the training programs and the accreditation courses and that come into your workplace to tell you what kind of job you should be given because you're an ENTJ or whatever it is that you are. And the dead giveaway, you know the dead giveaway, I think, is that you've got the four categories, remember? And each one is broken into two, so you've got, two, you've got 16 different potential psychological types. And none of them is jerk. <laughs> Every single one of them is some sort of beautiful, blossoming wondrousness that just needs to be let free. So I remember doing it. I was, um, I was an ENTJ, I think. I can't remember what that means. So, you know, but you, you get your, I suppose I'm an ESJ, ESTJ, extroverted, sensing, thinking, judging. And you think, yeah, that, that would feel pretty good about myself. Well, how about like a narcissistic control freak who wants to be the center of attention the whole time? <laughs> like, because some people just are. Or... I'm an INFP, and it's like, finally, you feel excused from the fact that you're actually an inefficient, sloppy defeatist who shows up late for every meeting and expects everyone to read your mind. <laughs> like, what, what we've done is we've given people 16 different packages of excuses for psychological sins. No wonder people don't actually think it correlates to anything that's going to help you. And of course, what happens in the world 
is that you do this in your workplace, and then what they start to do is they organize the workplace around you, depending on how senior you are. So if you're an ENTJ and you're the boss, right, you get, <laughs> I bet, did I guess it right, yeah? <laughs> then you get to make everyone else sort of fit around you. Well, what the heck happened with that? This is one of the problems, by the way, of a technological economy. A technological economy is really good because it lets us get things done more quickly. But if we're all coal miners, like coal doesn't care about your psychology. Go and read The Road to Wigan Pier. Nobody's asking those guys whether they're intuitive, sensing, judging, feeling. It's like, no, just you've got to walk three miles underground through a tunnel two and a half feet high to get to work, and then we'll start paying you to hack coal out of the ground with your bare hands. See, if we had some kind of experience like that, it would be harder for us to buy this garbage, but we buy it all the time. And so people come to their pastors with some version of, I'm an INFP, and my husband won't conform. And maybe your husband is a narcissistic control freak and needs to repent as well. But like, we, we, we don't get to make excuses on the basis of psychology. At least we don't get to do that if you want to grow in Christ. Which takes us to therapy and counselling. In a feelings-dominated world, once you've identified your feelings, once you've identified your psychological type, everyone else has to conform. So where do you find this most universities? I always have to look down here if I want to find university students, right? Uh, safe spaces, yeah, trigger warnings. Why? Because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Because you don't want to hurt the God. Can you see what's happening? It's pure idolatry. It's all it is. Well, it's not all it is. It's idolatry that's killing people. Because people get used to trying to make their circumstances conform to their feelings. And then it turns out that when they actually go out in the real world, like, coal doesn't care about your psychology. The seasons of the year, if you're a farmer, don't care about your psychology. The horse that you're trying to put a shoe on doesn't care about your psychology. You go to an IT firm somewhere in Silicon Valley, your boss might pretend to care about your psychology because that's his job, because he's got to do that to get his kind of credit. But the, the economy doesn't care about your feelings. Like, you need to make money in business. And, and the laws of economics are just the laws of economics. You're stuck with them. And so we're training people to be unfit to handle the world out there by making everything flex to what's going on in here, how I feel. So that's what happens. And I take it that you don't pay any attention to the trigger warnings and you've never been in the safe spaces. But what have we done? Well, um, on the subject of hard work, children. Huh. Imagine, and ladies, some of you can imagine this extremely easily. You wake up at 2.17 in the morning again, third time that night. Now, search your feelings. Can you see the problem? Now, you want, now is it not obvious how this idol will destroy your family? If you stretch out with your feelings at that point, I promise your family will be ruined. If you have any. Which if you think ahead, you probably won't. You probably won't have children if when you get married, you really start to think about your feelings because what you'll start doing is asking people who have and you'll realise, man, there's no way I can cope with that. And of course there's no way you can cope in the sense of it's not easy, but there's a, you're made... That's not, we don't need to talk about that. But can you see the problem? Um, what about relationships more broadly? 
Um, microaggressions, you come across this phrase, and, what's, and, and we know it, I'm not going to ask you to tell me. Microaggressions are um, small, perceived slights or insults, which I might feel because of something that you've done, irrespective of your intentions. So you might ask me a question. You might say, um, so when did you move here from Australia? Like, people keep asking me that. That's, that's funny, by the way, because I'm from England. Can't you tell the difference? <laughs> now, the person didn't mean to be rude, but you know that an Australian accent sounds to a Brit like the most uncultured accent on the face of the planet? <laughs> so the, the lady who asked my kids, I get asked this all the time by people who come into the shop where Becky works and stuff. And, um, I get asked it. When, when did you move here from Australia? Now, microaggression, you see. A microaggression exists not because of anything objective that they've done, no intention in what they're doing. Where are my ethics students? What are the criteria for moral culpability? Knowledge and consent. So if, if somebody knows that they're doing something bad and deliberately do, does it, then they're sinning. But if they just said something and didn't mean to be offensive, it's not a sin. Well, according to microaggression theory, it is. Why? Because feelings. Because what's determinative is my feelings. We surely couldn't. We'd never let that kind of garbage into the church, would we? Would we? You know how easy Christians take offense at each other? Have you noticed? And have you noticed how, not all of you, but some of you do this, you'll start to construct a narrative concerning the person who you're offended on account of, which articulates how they somehow meant it. Now, if they meant it, if they were deliberately being insulting, that's sinful on their behalf. Now, it doesn't follow from that that the right thing for you to do is to be offended, but it it is at least true that um, they have done something wrong. But what should you do as a result of that? Well, if your feelings are absolute, then you've got to let your feelings be your guide. And actually, if your feelings are absolute, then it doesn't matter what they meant. I just feel offended. I felt slighted. I felt left out. I felt like, I felt like they were talking about me. Like, stuff your feelings. For your sake. Because if you let them be your God and you stick around here long enough, everybody's going to say something to offend you and you'll have 280 people who you're convinced all hate you. Never put down to malice what can easily be put down to stupidity. Seriously. People, people are far more stupid than they are malicious. And, and being, um, being thoughtless is morally culpable. But it doesn't mean that they intended to offend you. Maybe they just, they just thought you sounded Australian and I need to get over it. Finally, let me say just a word briefly about the, the world of work. I alluded to this previously, but this was, um, this was when the light started to dawn. When we got Mr. Douglas and Mr. Durst to talk about work at the Men's Discipleship Breakfast about 10 months ago. Go back and listen to that recording. I can't remember who said it. Um, one, of the, one of those two men said, 
speaking as an employer of a fairly large number of people, we have no duty to provide you with self-actualization. Reflecting on the phenomenon of staff wanting to join a company and saying, you know, I'm looking for a place where I feel valued. Note it, it's so instinctive, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to be in a company where you feel valued? Sorry, we sell steel products. Our customers don't care about your feelings. So I, so I did this experiment on myself. Okay? I, I thought, I can't experiment on you guys, that would be unfair. So I, this was literally, it was Friday morning, I got to precisely this point in the sermon. Are you impressed I got this far on Friday morning? And then I had to go back and rewrite the first half. But I stopped right at this point. And actually, I was, I was right in the zone, I was working, I was, like, I was getting loads of stuff done, which is why I got it done by Friday morning. I, but I stopped and I started to look at my feelings. Now listen, I love my job. I absolutely love what I do. I can't believe we get to do this and it gets called work. Even, you know, some of the early mornings trying to figure out at half past six on a Sunday morning what this text means. Um, I love what I do. But I stopped at about 10.30 on Friday morning and I started to examine my feelings. Do you want to t- I'll tell you what I found. I felt immediately slightly lost. Like, what am I doing here? I felt slightly empty. I didn't, there wasn't, I was trying to step outside my consciousness and look in and I felt uncomfortable. I had a dull ache in my left elbow. I don't know what I've done. Uh, I got ache in the small of my back. I think I know what I did there because I heard the crunch a few months ago when it went. And then my thoughts, I was thinking about later in the day and I started to feel overwhelmed because there's quite a lot still to do. I was meeting with two different people on Friday which was delightful, but I've, man, I've still got some work to do on this sermon. I started to feel inadequate, and the more I examined my feelings, I actually start, the word depressed popped into my mind, so I wrote it down here. I thought, am I depressed? Now, um, a few moments earlier, I was absorbed in what I was doing, and, and loving it in the sense of pile of books everywhere, just trying to wrestle with these ideas and make them slightly digestible. Let me know how I've gone with that. And there I was, and and what would be the worst possible thing at that moment would be for a psychiatrist to walk in the room and say, hey, listen, I encourage you to think about your feelings. Why don't we talk about that? Why don't you write them down? He would prescribe me a truckload of antidepressants and tell me to take six months off work. Seriously. If I described to him or her what I felt at that moment. Now, this gets into the stuff about mental health concerning which, see, see the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I'm not saying that the whole pharmaceutical side of the mental health industry is totally bad. Go and listen to what um, uh, Pastor Cogbill said about that on the podcast when I interviewed him. Very, very helpful. But can you... Here's the problem. We actually find joy and satisfaction when we're not looking for it. That's the key thing. You find, it's like what C.S. Lewis says about joy. Have you read Surprised by Joy? Such an insightful book. You, that joy is not a thing that you can find. Joy is what you experience in other pursuits that you're absorbed in. It's why Cal Newport wrote that book um, called Don't Follow Your Passion. Every 18 to 25-year-old should read that book before you apply for your first job. Don't follow your passion. Fascinating book. What you should do is try to get really good at something so you can get absorbed in it so that you love it and you find joy without even realizing that's what you're looking for. And so I was sitting there, I was thinking, 
what, what, now what do I do? Because I was depressed at my desk. And, I, and so I wrote on a little piece of card and stuck the post-it note on my computer, stuff your feelings. Right? That idol needs to be torn down. Can you imagine Jesus, just for a second? We've almost done, I promise. Imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Good job he hadn't read Rousseau. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, tear down this idol, we pray, that it may no longer exercise control over our lives, ruin our relationships, compromise our productivity in the world, and tear apart our families. We pray that this church, of which we're privileged to be a part, would grow and thrive as we seek to cleave to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.